everybody, Chuck Marone here. Before we get started, I just want to give you a little update on the Strong Towns Academy. You can go to academy.strongtowns.org. There we have published a uh, free Strong Towns 101 course. If you are interested in a broad overview of Strong Towns ideas, if there's someone you know that would benefit from that, uh, send them to the Strong Towns Academy. You're going to get 17 lectures over a little over four hours of instruction to give you kind of a broad overview of what Strong Towns is about and how to start thinking like a Strong Towns advocate. For those of you that want to go deeper, for those of you that maybe need continuing ed credits, for those of you that want to assemble a plan for your community to make your place a strong town, we are putting out a series of eight advanced courses. These courses are going to be released individually beginning in the coming weeks. Uh, We're working on them right now, and we will be releasing them over the coming year. You're going to be able to buy each of those individually or for a very limited time. Uh, You can go right now to academy.strongtowns.org and sign up for a subscription to all eight courses. We set out a certain number of subscriptions at the very beginning here to allow us to fund this effort and uh, complete this work. Uh, We are sold two-thirds of those, so sales have been very robust, and there's been a lot of demand for this. We are almost done, and we are going to close that off here in what I would imagine would be the next couple weeks. So if this is something that interests you, if you would like to be part of our advanced course and put together your own plan for your own community, go to academy.strongtowns.org and buy your subscription today before the, uh, the time runs out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You're going to love this podcast. Take care. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. A frequent guest on our podcast over the years has been James Howard Kunstler. Jim is a friend. You'll know him and remember him from his books, Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, The World Made by Hand series, which we discussed here uh, a number of times with Jim. He wrote a book, Too Much Magic, and now he has a new book out called Living in the Long Emergency. Global Crisis, the Failure of the Futurists, and the Early Adapters Who Are Showing Us the Way Forward. You can find Jim's work at his website, Kunstler.com, where he twice a week publishes a blog. He has a podcast, and uh, he's got an awesome garden, and we're going to talk about all that and more. Jim, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Welcome back. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've actually been wanting to talk to you for a while. I feel like you're my check-in guy. How are you holding up right now, you know, with the whole coronavirus and stay at home and, and all the craziness? How are you personally doing? Ah, just running around with my hair on fire, you know, <laughs> putting myself in a plastic bag at night, sleep in the freezer, you know, usual things. Seriously, how I've been doing, leading a pretty normal life by my peculiar standards because I uh, work alone. I uh, don't have to get dressed for success. I commute to the my basement office to do my thing. Those professional routines of my life have not changed at all. The sequestering business started around the same time that uh, the garden prep started, you know, the cleaning up 
for preparation for planning. So I've been plenty busy, you know, since March around here, taking care of fruit trees and cleaning up trash and that stuff. The biggest change in my life, I think, is uh, I play music three nights a week with my homies. And so the Tuesday contra dance uh, practice is off. The Wednesday rock and roll practice is off. And the Thursday Celtic jam in the bar is off. And I miss those things horribly because they were the kind of center of my social life. I do have a little company here. Uh, I have some female company. So I'm not living in a total human vacuum. Oh, the other thing is that since people have uh, started to recognize that we're in something that quacks like a long emergency, my volume of mail has gone up pretty hugely and uh, it's become a little bit hard to deal with. But th that's how it is for me. Now, you know, my ideas about what's going on uh, are something apart from my regular routines, but I'm not being oppressed by the situation. And, you know, I also live in a corner of upstate New York that it is quite rural. I live in the, the literally the edge of the town of the village, which is uh, an old uh, uh, New England mill village of about 2,500 people. And I'm 11 feet outside the village tax district. So I can walk into town if there was anything open besides the PO, which there isn't. I have stocked up considerably well in advance of this event because I I could tell, you know, pretty much in January that something was up. So I'm doing okay. I must say I got a lot of friends here who are normal people who are not doing okay, especially economically and financially, and it's very troubling. I've seen the same thing here in my small town. And like you, I mean, I asked my wife who does the requisitioning of supplies to buy extra toilet paper back in, in February. And she thought it was just stupid. And then uh, Chuck looked like a genius for once. <laughs> the, whole, the whole family's like, wow, dad, you're, you're pretty smart. Did they take you out of the stupid man folder? Just briefly. You know, I have two daughters. And so between the three of them, my wife and the two of them, which are, are they're both teenagers now. Yeah, I'm pretty deeply buried in the dumb man folder. But dad comes through every now and then. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, here in our county just 25 cases total in the whole county. And I do see my neighbors who are, like you described, you know, they're good, decent hardworking people becoming very, very frustrated with the stay at home orders. There's a part of me that I have the luxury like you of, I commute to my basement office exactly the same. It's a very nice life. I'm not burdened hardly at all by this, but I see them as being like desperately burdened. Last weekend, I drove to my parents' house to work on our garden. I took the moment to drive through the Home Depot parking lot and it was packed. And not only was it packed, but there were just people there. Like it was like they hadn't seen each other forever, you know, giving each other hugs and standing around in circles talking. And, and I thought this social distancing thing is not, it, it's not the fringe people you see with AKs and what have you marching on the Capitol. There's a broader pushback on this. Is that what you're seeing where you're at? Yeah. I see people becoming uh, frightened and resentful. And it's really as simple as that. They've got enough reason to be paranoid about the government. I mean, we've been in a really a, a politically very bad situation for the last three years. And by that, I don't mean Trump, Trump, Trump necessarily. There's plenty of ill will and bad feeling going around to, for everybody. People are, are getting to the point where, you know, we could see something in the way of serious civil disorder. Is this 
breaking down along the rural urban lines, the way we've seen like politically things start to break down. Is, is that like a combustible part of this or is the rural areas just on a delay you think? Oh, I think that it's much more complicated than that. And it's a real state of political flux because events are moving so quickly. It's certainly not just urban and rural because I mean, the urban people are probably feeling more desperately cooped up than, than we are. I actually walk down a beautiful country road every day. You know, it's a huge relief. I, I get some, you know, I get to see what the spring flowers are doing out there. And, you know, I also am on a three acre property where I can ramble around and work in the garden. And people cooped up in apartments in Chicago and New York or even Los Angeles. It was a different story. So that's changed. The political right has been in a state of exasperation for the last three years over the abuses of the FBI, the Department of Justice, uh, and others in the federal government. They're primed to be very suspicious of the government. But, uh, you know, now what we're seeing is that people who are living in the cities are becoming pretty restless with their political leaders, too. And in places like New York and California and um, San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago, you know, you've got uh, democratic regimes that are really squashing things in all of this flux of confusion and, and ill feeling and disorder. There's another kind of line of narrative that says that the Democratic Party wants to make this as bad as possible and wants to tank the economy as, as badly as possible. I don't know if there's anything to it, but it kind of smells like it a little bit. Sure. We, when you look at the most high-profile things that have been done, it's pretty hard to feel any sense of security. I read a tweet somewhere, and I thought it was hilarious because it, it kind of fit in the very early parts of March. It said, you know, if aliens invaded the Earth, the first thing that we would do as Americans is lower interest rates. Um, it, <laughs> that's great yeah no be, but but that well, does that does speak to something doesn't it i mean that yeah you know our our response to the building being on fire is to actually like grab the wealthy person's handkerchief or whatever and get that out of the house before we worry about anything else what kind of effect is that having on our on our discourse or on our perception of reality it, well, that's another thing that's in flux because we, we really haven't seen the consequences of exactly that behavior. And, and by that, I mean, you've got all these Main Street people and people who own their own businesses and, you know, people who used to have jobs who were promised some kind of relief uh, for at least a period ahead, you know, going a few months so they could pay their mortgages and their car payments and feed their children. They discover they're not actually, you know, a small percentage of them have only got have gotten their, their money or that promised money. Well, meanwhile, uh, the hedge funders are all getting bailed out and the too big to fail banks are getting bailed out. I don't think we've begun to see the resentment about that uh, yet, but you know, that's probably going to be kind of uh, a deep reverberation of the whole crisis. And I think when that comes, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty brisk. It seems like 2008 brought us, right, the Tea Party and brought us Occupy Wall Street. And, and I think you can make the case brought us the Bernie Sanders movement and Donald Trump to a degree. It feels like we're setting ourselves up for the next wave of, you know, wh whatever, like a bigger reaction to that would be. Is, is that what you see coming? Yeah. Only uh, the, the bigger reaction to that I don't see as being particularly coherent. Trump himself may not be particularly coherent, 
but his you know a lot of his followers have coherent reasons for joining his uh, his mission. Whether you are on board with Bernie Sanders' ideas or not, it is at least pretty clear. I think the next reaction to what's happened is going to be disorder and incoherence and ill feeling and fighting. You know, we've come out of a period which, interestingly to me, because I'm kind of a student of mass psychology, you know, has been characterized by a lot of really crazy intellectual battles. You know, like the last five years we've been battling over, uh, you know, the progressives have been telling us that free speech means that you shut down speakers and that kind of behavior. And, you know, they've taken positions that are really quite intellectually indefensible. And uh, so we've had battles over these indefensible stupidities. But that's going to change now to, I think, uh, you know, like battling in the street and people are just pissed up. We've never seen an economic uh, cataclysm like this in the history of the USA. The Great Depression didn't roll out this way. You know, we've already rolled up almost enough unemployment to be equal to like the first five years of the Great Depression. And it happened in like four weeks. The numbers of businesses that are folding up is just enormous. And one difference is that back in the Great Depression, most banks themselves were small businesses. You know, they were small corporations or family-owned banks, and a lot of them went out of business. And this time, the banks haven't gone out of business yet. It's just, you know, the regular American citizens, and they see the banks being propped up, and that's just a terrible recipe for insurrection and revolution and, and just really bad social misbehavior. So, you know, we're playing with fire with all this stuff, and this is all apart from whatever you think about the coronavirus. I find that the news is pretty confounding. You don't really know what to believe. Uh, You don't know if it's hyper serious, if it's not as serious as the flu or anything in between. You know, there are an awful lot of narratives out there that are competing and a lot of voices that appear to be intelligent on one side or the other. And, you know, I haven't taken a position on that in my own mind. I don't know what what's really up with that. Is it really, you know, it, it seems like, you know, it's killing a lot of people. Then again, you know, uh, a great many of them are in nursing homes and they're over 80 years old. So, I mean, who really knows? That'll sort itself out eventually. We'll figure out what the truth about that was. But in the meantime, you know, there's the the whole other story with the destruction to the economy. Uh, You know, not only the economy in terms of revenue flows, but the activities behind those revenue flows, which are being permanently damaged, you know, whole industries that may never really come back. And I'm thinking specifically about the automobile industry and the airline industry. And I don't particularly give a good goddamn about the carnival cruise industry. Right. I want to say something to you that is is almost a, not a confession, but close to that. There have been times over the years where, some of the things that you have pushed on have, you know, and I think this is intentional. I think this is a little bit of what you do had made me a little bit uncomfortable in the early days. You were talking about the craziness on school campuses way before someone like Jonathan Haidt was writing books about it. I mean, you, you were talking about this, you were pushing back on some of the excesses of the, you know, the woke conversation way before everyone else. And I've, I've just come to find you to be one of these, like early warning radar systems, you tend to overreact early. 
I've come to find that as like a, okay, what am I not seeing or perceiving? I'm trying to make the case like that's the va- that's the greatest value that you've provided, I think, to society. And as I read your books and go through the work that you do, I always find that you're like three or four steps ahead of, you know, where kind of the general perception is. Let me turn it into a question. A few years back, you were calling for or suggesting that there might be a spontaneous default on student loans, that, that if enough people just said to hell with it, we're not paying our student loans, that there would be like no floor under that. And I think almost like no consequence too, right? Because like it would just be MMT. It would just be like the the government would take it in the shorts and like, who cares? But when we switch that over to now, let's not pay our rent. There's a whole other like daisy chain of things that happen from that. And I think that's the thing that seems very combustible to me now where we have people who can't pay their rent and then people who maybe are are not going to pay their rent. And uh, that just makes the whole thing go bad, right? Well, yeah, it does. Because, you know, what you're talking about are large, enormous daisy chains of revenue flows that if you don't pay your mortgage and 700 other people in your town don't pay their mortgage, that means the bank loses its revenue, which means that the bank gets in trouble, which, you know, and that means all kinds of other things get into trouble. We've destroyed this enormous chain of revenue flows that are necessary to keep the macro revenue flows going in our system. And, you know, it's it's like having a heart attack in, the, you know, the circulatory system. The f- financials are the circulatory system of the economy. It seems to me like if people didn't pay their student loans, that daisy chain is, is shorter. Like the bank loses their money. It's insured by the federal government. The federal government gives them the money. Someone's got to print money. And, and we can talk about the long-term consequences of that. But if someone doesn't pay their rent... And that person then defaults on their underlying payment. And then there's a mortgage-backed security on that. And then there's no like theory of economics says we can plug that hole with cash or by printing money or by borrowing fictitiously from the future or from the Chinese or whoever. That one seems to be not really resolvable by like the fictional tools that we've created. Is that your take? Yeah, you do make a point about the student loans having kind of a seeming to have a short chain of consequence just going to the federal government and you know having them dismissed but you know ultimately when loans are not paid back what that means is that money disappears from the system that provokes what would ultimately be uh, a deflationary crisis where you know money would disappear at such a fast rate that before too long a lot of people would not have any money. You know, as we've probably averred before, there are, you know, two ways of going broke with currency. You can either have a lot of money that's worthless or you can not have any money. The deflation way is to not have any money because when if your money is based on loans, which which ours is, you know, it's loaned into existence and then when it's not paid back, it's defaulted out of d- existence. And sooner or later, that is uh, represented by the behavior of the currency. So reckless game with whether or not you're going to create a ferocious debt deflation that is going to drive everybody into penury or whether or not you're going to, you know, with with your subsequent actions, you're going to provoke a, a terrible inflation. And, you know, the subsequent actions in this case is the Federal Reserve just creating money from nowhere. 
and from nothing, out of nothing. And, and uh, you know, if you do enough of that, you're going to harm the currency one way or another. We've pretended that that's not really going to happen because for 10 years we were able to direct all of those capital flows of new money into the equity markets where, you know, it didn't really apply to ordinary people because most people don't invest in stocks. You know, now that so much of the new injectable money is supposedly going to ordinary people, you know, what Milton Friedman sarcastically referred to as helicopter money, dropping money from helicopters, that means that money gets into the system and sooner or later it will uh, affect the value of the money. Well, especially if there's no beef on the store shelves and people... Well, that's a whole other layer of things, which <laughs> right. is, uh, you know, that's why I said there's, you know, there's the capital flows are one thing, you know, the debts being paid back, the new loans being made, the money circulating, the money being spent, the m- money being taken in. That's one thing. But the activities behind them is another thing, you know, and if you destroy those activities so that you can never do them again, you can never produce any more value or or uh, revenue out of them again, then, you know, that's like killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Right. That's the situation where when you read about like the Arab Spring and people lighting themselves on fire in the, in the town square, you know, because corn prices have gone way up or wheat prices have gone way up. It seems like we're flirting with that type of a situation, right? And I don't know as Americans will light themselves on fire, but they might light something on fire. You bet. It's not a coincidence that one of the favorite phrases of the last few years have been lighted up. That reflects, you know, partly a population of people who have some military experience and also a population of people who are on edge and anxious about their lives and about the powers that control them. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty understandable. I I went to the supermarket uh, yesterday. You know, I go at these intervals of maybe seven to 10 days. And I was pretty impressed with how empty the shelves were. You know, there are a lot of ordinary things that are just not in supply. There was some meat. I was surprised that there was some meat. But um, it was pretty sparse. Nothing compared to what it used to be like. And then there are a whole kind of ranges of things, especially, uh, you know, flour of all kinds and yeast and, you know, normal kinds of things, rice, beans, uh, kind of the raw materials for for long-term storage, that stuff was just not there. And and even the the stuff in the middle of the store, the prepared foods and the the microwavable snacks and dinners and stuff, they were they were pretty sparse too. Right. That's the same thing we're seeing here. I feel like we've been being gaslighted a little bit on that inflation story. You know, the idea that there there is no inflation. And I'm like, well when you give when you give money directly to rich people, they buy things that rich people buy, which is stocks and, you know. Gucci bags. Yeah, exactly. And they've gone way, way up in price. The, the idea that now we're going to bail out Main Street, which seems to be like the transaction cost of giving Boeing money and giving Carnival Cruise money and what have you, seems to be that, you know, we, we also need to bail out Main Street this time. I feel like asking the inflation question is, you know, we're going to get all kinds of people who stand up and and call us kooks and crazies and gold bugs and what have you. But I I do feel like we've been gaslighted on that. It it seems pretty obvious to me that if the food on the shelf is sparse and you put lots of money into people's hands, that you are just going to get really high prices, right? 
I think part of the equation that has been uh, not maybe paid enough attention to is just that when the supply lines go, you know, you, you've got an additional layer of problems that inflation, I hate to say normal inflation, normal hyperinflation, because hyperinflation is not normal under any circumstances and even extreme something less than hyperinflation is not normal. But, you know, it's uh, generally not accompanied by a kind of additional crisis like the virus crisis that uh, destroys supply lines. So, you know, that just introduces another factor that makes the outcome even less predictable. Um, I think the only thing you can predict about that is that people are going to suffer one way or another, you know, either their money is going to become worthless or their money will become worthless and there will be nothing to buy or maybe the money will just disappear first and nobody will have any money for a while and then they, there will be a lot of you know, printed money around that is worthless. And then we'll, so we'll, you know, basically saying, you know, we'll be going from deflation to inflation or perhaps hyperinflation. And, you know, where that, where the problem with the broken industries fits in is really hard to, to calculate right now. It's one of those things in the, the more general macro flux that really only suggests that we're resetting to a much lower standard of living and a much different scale of uh, human activity than we're used to. You and I have both chosen to live in small towns. I think you and I both have also appreciated big cities to an extent. Well, I grew up in one, so. You grew up in New York. So yeah, sure, yeah. I know what it's like. Right, we're both part of the CNU, and I, I've I've found it interesting how the new urbanists, my friends, you know, people I, I deeply respect and admire, many of them have rushed to a defense of big cities, a defense of, you know, subways and transit and high density living, you know, in the face of like the Joel Kotkins and the Randall O'Toole saying, you know, this is going to be now like a new suburban revolution. Let me ask this in two ways. How would you respond to the the Kotkins and the Randall tools and the people who say like now we're going to have a new suburbanism? But would you also maybe you know have something to say to the the kind of reflexive urbanist defenders who are like you know the the triumph of the city and it's all about density and it's all about uh, mega places? Is, is is there something to say to both of these that maybe they're a little bit off? You bet. You bet. And I've written quite a bit about this, especially lately. You know, one is, uh, you know, there is this idea that, and it's been with us for quite a while that, uh, you know, and it comes from people like Ed Glazer at Harvard. And uh, that's the idea that the cities are only going to get denser and the high rises are only going to get taller. And, uh, you know, th they're completely out to lunch about that. First of all, the virus has introduced another level or a different region of, of trouble to the whole city picture because now people are paranoid about living in proximity to other people. And many of the things that were formerly urban amenities like public transit and subways and, you know, they're no longer now they're seen as a danger. So that is probably going to have a, an effect on people's attitudes about city life. How long that will last is hard to say, but my guess is that it doesn't matter much because there, there are other things in play that are going to harm big city life as much as the virus has harmed the psychology of urbanism or the giant scaled urbanism. And it is a problem of scale. And here's the deal, you know, if... If we are, in fact, resetting to a different scale of economic activity, it really kind of implies that we're not going to be able to maintain 
the cities as they are now uh, at the scale that they have achieved in the last, you know, post-war 75 years since World War II. They have achieved a scale and kind of complexity of hyper-complexity that simply can't be um, maintained anymore, especially in an age where capital is disappearing. And, you know, we're not going to have the money to fix all of the stuff in the cities, including the water systems, the sewer systems, the, the public transit. We're going to have problems with, uh, especially with the new buildings, the, the, the brand new uh, skyscrapers in places like New York and Chicago and Boston and L.A., you know, and, and San Francisco. Not all cities have these things, but they're going to become liabilities rather than assets. It's already happening in New York City where they've been uh, hoisting up new skyscrapers uh, like crazy for the last 10 years. And it's accelerated in the last few years. And now they've got these new gigantic slender residential skyscrapers and they're just coming on the market and they can't sell a single unit now. You know, they're like overnight, they're obsolete. So there's that. And, uh, you know, I think that between that and the maintenance problems, the cities are going to contract and it's going to be a really ugly process. They're not going to be able to pay for themselves. They're going to be bankrupt. You know, many of these cities uh, and ultimately probably most or all of them are not going to be able to meet their pension obligations. They're not going to be able to take care of stuff. It's going to be a mess and they're going to have to get smaller. And of course, Something will still be there because, as we know, they occupy important sites geographically. You know, that, that's an important thing, but they're going to have to get much smaller. And, you know, as that process occurs, cities may be rather nasty places to live. You know, all the wonders of being in Brooklyn for the last 20 years may suddenly turn around and start to be pretty harsh. I think a lot of people are going to be looking for another place to live. Now, aggravating all of this is the fact that the less than giant cities in America and the small towns in America are among the most disinvested places in America, the places that have fallen the furthest into decrepitude. They have a very bad odor these days and people don't want to be there. You know, there are these sort of geriatric ghost towns. That's going to change for various reasons. One is that you know, contrary to what Joel Kotkin and Rand Randall O'Toole and, and other boosters of suburbia say, uh, that way of life is really over. And, uh, you know, we can see it very vividly now, for example, in the collapse of the both the oil industry and the automobile industry. I've been talking to the people at Toyota for the last two days because they called me up about six months before my car lease is, was over. And they, they, they want me to, you know, Get another car lease uh, six months before the old one is over. They're desperate to sell cars and move them off the, off the lot. In recent years, let's say, the automobile dealers have been giving out these ridiculous, you know, seven-year loans for used cars. And uh, that's how desperate they are. And, and, and also, you know, long-term loans for new cars. And, you know, they just can't move the merch off the, off the lot. And now this virus thing comes along and you've got 30, 40 million people suddenly unemployed, many of them with no prospect of ever getting back to work. I'd say the automobile industry is cooked. They've got to sell, you know, like uh, uh, 17 million units a year between the three big ones. And I think General Motors sold uh, 8 million cars in 2019. You know, they're not going to become boutique producers who only make 1.3 million cars. You know, either they're going to keep up at the scale that they're that they're penciled out to work at or, or they're going to go down. 
And I think they're going down. And so, you know, th that's one part of the picture. Another part of the picture is, you know, we've got this fantastic hierarchy of roads and streets, this tremendous system that uh, requires just unbelievable amounts of attention and money and capital and maintenance. And uh, the municipalities are going to be going broke, especially the, the suburban municipalities. And um, they're not going to be able to fix these roads or these suburban cul-de-sac uh, uh, networks or, or anything. You know, the commercial uh, uh, fried food boulevards. You know, all those things are going to become enormous liabilities for, for us. So, you know, between that and the housing industry imploding and people not being able to pay their mortgages and people having a problem getting around – you know, that's going to be a problem. We never reckoned on the, the idea that it wouldn't be the question of what kind of fuel you put in a car that would wreck the industry or, or, or at least, uh, you know, make a difference. It would be a, really more a matter of can Americans afford cars? It was getting to look like uh, the answer was increasingly no, even before the virus hit. Now it's beginning to look like hardly anyone's going to be able to afford to buy a car. So, uh, you know, that whole thing is fraught. So I think suburbia is toast and, and people are going to need a place to go. And the places that they might consider going is to these islands of disinvestment that we call small towns and small cities. And, and the, the other feature of the argument is that we are pretty clearly heading into a crisis with our food supply one way or another. You know, I mean, either it's going to be the supply chains that are breaking down, the transportation and distribution of food and the ability of the, you know, the whole system of supermarkets and wholesalers and and all those people to meet their obligations and pay for the stuff that they get, which may be one of the reasons that we're seeing, uh, you know, quasi empty supermarket shelves now because the chains may be in trouble. But it's also a question of whether industrial agriculture, which depends, uh, you know, hugely on on giant capital flows, you know, whether that can make it. Because the farmers on these multi-thousand acre spreads out in your part of the country, their major inputs, as they call them, are fertilizers and uh, pesticides and seed and machinery. But one of their biggest inputs is capital. And if the capital flows are choked down to nothing and, you know, and you're running a big farm of thousands of acres and you can't get a $700,000 loan to put your crop in, guess what? You're not going to put that crop in. So the whole thing is like hugely problematical. And at every angle you look at it, what you're seeing are fragilities and you're seeing out of scale monocultures that have been constructed that that are destroying or, or that are going to be subject to destruction in a badly designed economic ecosystem. It's like we built an ecosystem of nothing but uh, white pine trees and there's, there are no other creatures in the whole thing. And if you get a pine disease, then the whole forest dies. The food one freaks me out because I grew up on a farm. It's not just like, can you get fertilizer? It's, can you get fertilizer in the 10-day window that you must apply it or it does no good? There you go. Can you get migrant workers to come in during that 10-day window when you absolutely have to pick the crop or the crop is worthless? And to me, the fragility of the system is just that all those, all those little parts that we've come to just count on being there 
seem at best very unreliable right now, like very unreliable. Have you seen the stories out of our part of the country where we had one last week where 60,000 chickens were butchered because the the places couldn't take the eggs? It's, it's the oil thing in poultry. They're killing, slaughtering hogs, digging huge like trenches and just burying them because there's no supplier to take it, even though there's no pork on the shelves in the store. And like people would gladly, I, I know people who have gone to farmers and bought like six hogs that were, they were going to kill for like 50 bucks a piece. I mean, this is, these are things that would normally cost five, $600, but it's either sell them to, you know, your neighbor and they make use of it or bury it in a ditch. Stop for a moment because you're out there and, and I'm back east here. Um, I'm curious, what, where do you think the failure is in the, that supply chain from the, the guys who are raising the, the pigs to the supermarket? Where, where's the failure right now that you're seeing? A lot of them are like my contract is with McDonald's or my contract is with you know, Denny's or my contract is with whoever. And then those places just don't have the demand. And so they're turning around to their suppliers saying like, Hey, I don't need, you know, I don't need 200,000 Oh, I see. Okay. And so they're sitting there with this barn full of chickens that you've got to feed and you've got to get the eggs and you've got nowhere to send. It's the, it's the oil problem. You've got nowhere to send the eggs. You've got no money to feed the chickens. And so you're basically left with like, the only thing I can do is kill them all and kind of cut my losses. You know, the only thing I can do is, is stop pumping oil. Yeah. In the oil business, they shut down the wells. And I guess in the chicken business, you, you kill the chickens. It is the oil thing though, where you, you have these kind of janky contracts that are in a sense coming due and no one's there to take delivery. And so what do you, what do you do with this stuff? And it's really hard when, you know, Walmart is open, but the local hardware store is closed. Uh, McDonald's drive-thru is open, but the Front Street Cafe can't open. Farmers are killing chickens, but there's no eggs to be had in the store. This is a bizarre world we've created. And and yeah, it seems very, um, I don't see how this works its way out without a lot of destruction and pain. Yeah. And then you mentioned the oil industry. Um you know, there's a lot to say about the oil industry. And, you know, one thing you can say, I, I've been saying it for a while and I, I wrote about it in my new book, is that it was a very impressive stunt, shale oil. It was totally based on uh, near zero interest rate financing. During the 12 years or so that they ramped up the shale oil industry, they proved that they couldn't make a red cent producing shale oil. And so now after 10 years or 12 years of, of the industry relying utterly on revolving loans for a, an activity that doesn't make any money, uh, they're not going to get any new loans because they've proved that they can't make money and because there's now we're heading into a capital shortage. So the shale oil industry is forced with the prospect of having to, as they say, shut in their production, which means close down their wells. And closing down a shale well is nothing like closing down a conventional well. A conventional oil well of the old 1950s type was just a hole in the ground with a straw in it. It was a steel straw, but that's all it was. And if you wanted to shut it off, you just turn off the pump jack. You know, and then you come back and you turn it back on. Shale oil wells totally different. You know, they're they're doing these long horizontal bores and injecting all of this fluid in there. And to close them up, as I understand it, they got to inject a certain amount of concrete in there. And it's just a huge, expensive problem that will probably never be faced because once they shut them in, 
they're never going to be opened up again. They, I mean, it's conceivable that they might drill new wells in some of the same places, but a lot of these existing wells are just, you know, they're just toast. So, you know, the technical part of it probably eludes most of the mass media and the public, but the prospect is that, uh, you know, we're going to be going back down to, you know, a pretty low production. We, we were producing at the height of shale oil, we were producing 13 million barrels a day. And that was 3 million barrels above the 1970 prior production peak of about 10 million barrels a day. So it was an impressive stunt for sure. But we may be going back to something like our, you know, 2008 level of 5 million barrels a day. And that's, we, you know, we have been using 20 million barrels a day of oil in the USA. Most of that is for transportation. And, you know, a lot of it is for manufacturing and making chemicals and making plastic and stuff like that. But the bottom line is it means a way different life for Americans. We compensated for that uh, low 5 million barrels a day back in 2008 by importing 15 million barrels a day. That's going to be much more difficult in a geopolitically fracturing world where there's especially an enormous amount of ill feeling now between America, the countries in the Middle East that produce oil, and Russia. And And then, of course, there are the Europeans. You know, they've got a similar economic problem as we are, or the the virus predicament and the shutdown are similar to ours, but they have almost no oil of their own. So, you know, they're going to be completely at the mercy of other people in other lands. So that whole thing is uh, a huge problem. But to get back to your point, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, All the signs are that suburbia is not only going to fail, but it's going to fail pretty quickly and pretty harshly. The cities are going to be facing problems that they never imagined in being able to finance themselves and take care of their service uh, obligations and fix their stuff. And a lot of people are going to be leaving, including a lot of people who are comprised most of the taxpayers. So that's going to be a problem. And and um, what it tells you is you'll be lucky if you can find a place to live in a decent small town that has proximity to farming and especially farming and on less than the super gigantic scale. You wrote The Long Emergency almost 20 years ago. 15, really. 15. Okay. It's a fantastic book. It's one of the books I refer to more often than any other it is a wonderful book. And and if you are listening to this today and have not read The Long Emergency, you need to go read that book. You wrote a follow-up to that book called Too Much Magic. I almost feel like there's a little bit of karma now in the second follow-up that we're going to discuss here next. But I, I want you to stop and uh, talk about Too Much Magic and maybe why that book wasn't a commercial success, despite you know it being very good writing and really instructive and a book that I uh, got a lot out of and enjoyed. Well, it, it was published after the crash of uh, 2008 uh, in 2012. And so we had four years of experience with having been post-crash. And the subtitle of uh, Too Much Magic was Technology, Wishful Thinking, and the Fate of the Nation. And by an interesting coincidence, the nation had entered a period of really uh, vivid, wishful thinking after the 2008 crash, you know, and part of it was provoked by the shale oil miracle, so-called, because that 
we're going to be energy independent and all of our troubles with uh, energy are over. That supported the wishful thinking uh, armature. But then there was all this chatter about how we were going to, you know, have a green revolution and we were going to run Disney World and suburbia and the interstate highway system on solar and wind. So there was this just tremendous mood of uh, exuberant wishful thinking. And, no, you know, when I published a book about wishful thinking, suggesting that it might not be a very good idea, people didn't want to hear it. Right. We wanted wishful thinking. We didn't want. Yeah, we uh, wanted to believe all that stuff. We wanted to believe that we were going to save suburbia with uh, self-driving electric cars. You know, we wanted to believe that shale oil was going to um, allow us to, you know, keep making supermarket plastic bags forever. Those things are have now kind of come to a uh, really abrupt halt and in a way that mm, kind of looks like we're not going to be able to just pick them up and make them run the way they used to. Like, a, you know, it's not like a broken model car or something, you know, or a broken toy that you can just put a new spring in and, and the thing starts right up again. There are just too many parts in this thing we call the economy and too many of them have been damaged and removed. I mean, not the least of which are these these gigantic flows of finished goods from China and, uh, you know, a lot of these things used in the assembly of other things that we have to make. The signs are that those supply lines are not going to come back the way they were and may actually go away altogether if ill feeling between China and the U.S. gets worse than it is now, which kind of looks like we're going in that direction. Right. I saw someone comment on one of our Strong Towns posts once. I'm going to give you like a paraphrase of their quote, but to me, it was like peak too much magic. They made the comment that their two heroes or the two people that they were most inspired by was Jim Kunstler and Elon Musk. <laughs> huh. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's insane. How do you reconcile, you know, as a human being? I don't think it's insane. Okay, tell me why it's no, not I don't think insane. It's insane. Because there are two different things going on there. I mean, especially with Elon Musk. There's Elon Musk's corporate aspirations, you know, to electrify the car industry and to make a voyage to Mars. Both of those things are probably not going to happen. Now, it's certainly true that you can demonstrate that you can make a good electric car. There's no question about it. But in a country full of people who can no longer buy any kind of a car, no matter what they're powered by, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so there's that. There's the absurdity and techno-narcissism of the voyage to Mars, you know, because if for no other reason that wouldn't it be a good idea to demonstrate we can live on a planet that's ideally suited for human beings before we make a voyage to Mars? That whole thing is preposterous. And that's apart from all the, you know, the biological and radiological and other logical reasons why space travel is extremely difficult and hazardous especially a place that far away. Then there's the other part of Elon Musk, which is, you know, the charismatic personality and the wild man and the rebel. And I think that people really resonate with that probably as much or more than whatever it is he's up to in his Musk lab. It excites people to see him smoking a joint on the Joe Rogan show and, you know, releasing really profane tweets against his government and corporate adversaries. And, uh, you know, people like that. He's given the finger to a lot of uh, authorities in the country, and this is a country full of rebels. So 
people like that. So I, you know, it's kind of deceptive why people might, you know, put us in the same folder. To me, the, the whole Elon Musk thing is like, it's, it's a synonymous in my mind with Ray Kurzweil, you know, it's, it's, it, but it's, you can actually put money into Elon Musk, you know, you can buy Tesla stock easier than you can buy Kurzweil stock, I guess. You, 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 well, you can't buy singularity shares. Right, right, precisely. I want to end with the, the new book that you have out, which if there is cosmic karma, the fact that the long emergency is playing out so much more vividly now than even like six months ago, your book is landing at the precise time. And I realize that doesn't help sales because nobody has any money. But for, for someone like me who's interested in the ideas, I appreciate the fact that I can hand this book to someone and it vividly describes what's going on now. A big part of this book that I wasn't prepared for were the stories of what I think you've called the early adapters, the, the people who are there now leading the way. It seems like these people would be, I'm not ascribing this to myself, but I think general society may look at these people as like freaks or outcasts or just people who don't fit in. You found them and you've brought them to life. What are you hoping that people take away from those lessons of people who are early adapters? They're obviously not all role models, but they're, they're people who have found workarounds for a lot of the problems that uh, you and I and, uh, and they have been anticipating to come in the early 21st century. And that is, uh, you know, an economy that is going to probably not work as expected and uh, a social order that's going to be under enormous stress. So, you know, I collected this group of people. Some of them were people who, uh, most of them were people who, who corresponded with me over the years, and I knew what they were up to, and I knew that they were leading interesting lives. So one of them was this lady who um, is a an artisan baker up in Vermont. What I really found appealing about her was her incredible resilience and, and actual bravery and getting through one cataclysmic life problem after another, especially life problems related to running a small business. One thing after another would happen to her, you know, as she'd get set up in a uh, a bakery and invest a whole bunch of money. She bought some very, very fancy Spanish bread ovens, high-tech bread ovens, and one of them blew up very early in the run. She discovered that uh, not only did the company not service them in America, but when she finally communicated with a the company, they had no one who could even speak English. So she went through like a seven-month ordeal with the insurance company. She finally ended up with a set of German ovens, and she's back in business. But she had a long, you know, a long series of interesting ordeals, and you know, she it was really great to. Uh, find out about her life and just be able to admire someone who had so much pluck. There was a couple who were homesteading on Whitby Island in Puget Sound out in Washington State. And they had a very interesting operation going. And they were particularly interesting people who had bounced around a lot in their lives through one interesting career after another, both of them. They set up this uh, homestead near the ocean, near Puget Sound. A lot of strange things happened with, with just my visit to them, and that's that's in the book. I won't go into that right now, but but about two months after I left, they told me that uh, the naval base on Whitby Island expanded and was sending enormous new numbers of naval military aircraft flights over their house, and they decided to sell their homestead, and they picked up and they moved the whole darn thing to Vermont. 
And that was like just a shocking thing to hear. And then they did it and uh, they accomplished it. They got a, you know, they got a new property. They got a house on it that they have modified in some very critical ways. They put a masonry stove in the center of it as giant heating thing that well, it's a little too complicated to go into, but they, they they made these investments in the property and they're starting all over again, building their gardens and, you know, figuring out where they're going to put their goats. So they were both interesting people. There was a guy who was um, a white nationalist. He'd been writing to me for years and he was an interesting guy, apart from, you know, whatever his belief system might be and what it might feel like to other people. He was certainly an interesting guy who was very conscious of making new arrangements in a in a new America, an economically challenged America. So I went to talk to him and, you know, wrote up his story. And there was this guy who's a kind of a black intellectual in the Baltimore ghetto. I wrote him up and, and follow, went down there, followed him around for a while. And there's a guy who's a distiller uh, in Vermont. I live about 10 miles away from Vermont. So, you know, it's sort of part of my region. Anyway, he was an interesting guy who had dropped out of the corporate world. He'd been a newspaper editor, and before that, he'd been in the historic preservation field. And he dropped out, bought a farm, started growing his own grain and making whiskey. He, he was a hoot. He was um, like a living, walking science project. He figured everything about his operation by himself. He just did it by trial and error, and he was just this, had this great adaptability to uh, figure things out. So I was there visiting with him and recording interviews with him. And uh, late on one afternoon, these two guys show up and in a pretty fancy SUV. And I, I took them to be trout fishermen because, uh, you know, they had a really fancy uh, all-terrain car and they were wearing their L.L. Bean country casuals. And they wanted to buy some whiskey from this guy. He pointed to the sign on the side of his distillery barn that said, open Sundays, like 12 to 3. And he said, it's not Sunday. I'm not going to sell you any whiskey. And they begged and pleaded with him for, you know, like 15 minutes. Please sell us some, some booze. And he wouldn't do it. And so finally they gave up in frustration. They left. And I said, you know, what was that all about? You could have made an easy 200 bucks right there. And he said, uh, I don't really care. I made, I made uh, $2,500 at the farmer's market last week. <laughs> so he was succeeding at this thing that he had taken on. And, you know, it's tremendously uh, difficult to do. He had all these, you know, he had to manage a farm and, uh, you know, do all the physical labor and manage the distillery business himself. And he, he did marry a woman after he had started. He got married to a lady who had one child. And then they quickly had two more children. So, you know, he's supporting three kids and a wife. His wife, she does all the dairy stuff. You know, she raises the cows and does all the milking and all that stuff. But Kempton, the uh, main guy, does all the, you know, the farming and the, dis the distilling. So he was a compelling character. And all of these people had a very clear sense that they were really uh, off the reservation, you know, they were living a, the kind of lives that the future was going to compel other people to look into. And but they'd gotten there already and they'd already seen it and, and gotten with the program and had a head start. So, you know, I found them interesting and that's why I wrote about them. Beyond the writing being beautiful, as you would expect. I mean, I, I, your writing has always been very, very. Yeah, it's better than I, it's better than my speaking. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I've got all these 
verbal tics. Uh, Sometimes I, I think I sound like Camille Paglia where she says, uh, you know, every other, every other sentence, but I have good and better days uh, and worse days at the microphone. But I'm I'm better on the page for sure. You don't have a Minnesota accent, Jim. Where your your nose is always you you, you got to talk with your nose all the time. So at least you don't. At least you don't you do know, that. Well, eh? <laughs> no, no, the, I don't. The writing is the writing is beautiful, but I I do find it compelling that you know if we if we draw a contrast between the Elon Musk Ray Kurzweil vision of what sustainability is, and these people who. I'm going to go with you. I find that they each had individual levels of genius, but yet not the the Mensa type, you know, not the type that's going to land you a Harvard professorship, but the type that's going to help you figure out how to feed someone when you need to. These were very inspiring stories. And I'm, I'm just grateful you took the time to track all these people down and go meet them and, and kind of ferret out what they were all about. Well, it got me out of the house for a while, and and you know I haven't done that kind of uh, on the ground reporting for about twenty five years since I was writing, I was reporting articles for the New York Times Magazine. It was great just to get out there and you know get out there with a little pad and a tape recorder and and just you know do do the old thing again. Well, I hope people will get the book. I realize that we are in in trying times, but it's a good time to sit back and and read. I know my whole family, we've kind of dedicated ourselves to having more reading time as we're stuck at home. This is a great book for people. You really should read it. It's going to help you understand not only what's going on, but I think even more importantly, how a new future could look like, particularly one where you can create your own stability and your own comfort. Jim, I I think at the end of the day, the, the thing that is the dichotomy about you is I, I think if people know... Jim Kunstler, 10% or 20%, they hear someone who's predicting fear and doom and, 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 oh, Jim's, he's negative. If you know Jim Kunstler 50% or 70% or 80% or more, you get this beautiful vision of what a really healthy, vibrant, enjoyable future could be. That's what I've always like deeply appreciated about your fiction books. And, and that one comes through really strongly in this book. So I just want to say thank you for that because you are like part of my ray of hope in, in these kind of times. So thanks for being that person. Well, thanks for that. You know, both of us have been part of a movement. Uh, that was the new urbanism movement, which by the way, is not really about, it's not about giant cities and it's not about Brooklyn. It, it's really about building at all scale. And in particular, you know, the scales that we determine to be appropriate for the time and circumstances that we live in. And if we are entering a set of circumstances that are different from the last three quarters of a century, you know, that means that the way we make our towns and cities is going to reflect that. And uh, you've certainly been right on with your Strong Towns program and your books and your efforts to help the the struggling small towns prepare for what is going to be a, a different age. And I hope that they are ready to receive an influx of people because sooner or later they're going to be coming there. Right. Right. I would like to keep uh, corresponding with you with garden photos. I'm a few years behind you, but I'm, I'm catching up fast and my dad is my mentor and he's uh, he's taking to that quite well. So it's actually kind of rekindled, not what has been a strained relationship, but I think it's it's provided a different dimension to uh, 
to my relationship with my parents, which has kind of been fun. So yeah, I've been starting the garden and have always been inspired by yours. So we'll, we'll keep doing that. Does that sound all right? Yeah, well, he's not a Norwegian bachelor farmer by any chance. <laughs> no, no. Well, my, I guess you wouldn't be here if he was, would you? No, him and my mom. My mom is the uh, is the Norwegian. My dad is the. Uh, oh. He's half Norwegian, half German. So we're we got a lot of that Nordic stuff, but it's uh yeah. Ah, well, I took some snaps yesterday of uh, you know the beginning of the garden, just planning it out now after the big March and April cleanup. We're supposed to get a freeze this weekend, so I'm a little concerned. I'm going to have to go put row covers on some. I don't, I don't have that much stuff that's really poking up yet, but the peas are and uh, the cabbages are. I got to go cover them up. I think, and that's going to be kind of an ordeal. I got my potatoes planted and my corn planted, but nothing coming up yet. So we're. Um... Yeah, I, I don't. I don't plant corn because the squirrels just destroy them. <laughs> they, they just climb up, uh, they climb up the stalks and just rip the husks off and just eat them on the cob. And they leave them standing there, you know, right in the stalk. It's, it's pretty terrible. But, but I, I am doing like the Russian garden motif this year. I've got like a lot of cabbage and potatoes and onions and that's how we're rolling this year. Well, Jim, let's keep in touch. I always appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on the new book. As you say, let's ride again, right? We will ride again. We will ride again. For those of you listening, uh, the book is uh, Living in the Long Emergency. I want you to go to Kunstler.com Mondays and Fridays and check out Jim's blog and podcast. And also while you're there, one of the ways that we can support great people doing really important work today is by buying their books. And that's helpful. But Jim's got a Patreon set up. I'm a member. I think a lot of you listening are members. Sign up for Jim's Patreon. It's a way to keep people doing really important work, uh, fed and housed and productive, especially during the long emergency. So, Jim, thanks so much. You take care. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Chuck. Thank you, friend. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, thank the city! is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.